Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Very, very, very hot. Yeah, it's very hot. How do you feel about it being hot? I, I like it and then I don't like it because it makes me feel like I'm not doing enough. Yeah, I think the funny thing about it being warm weather in London, it's so funny for everyone in Australia, New Zealand, LA, basically any other warm country in the world. They call it a heat wave in London when it hits about 17 degrees. And now because we're acclimatized, it feels like a heat wave when it's about 13 degrees I'm like tops off tits out but then the thing about the city is because you know it's so rare you just get so stressed out because the minute it's sunny you're like oh my god what do I do I just need to be out in the sun but then there's no beaches so I know I woke up this morning and I was like Izzy we need to do something and you're like I feel sick yeah and we can't even and I've go got to, to work <laughs> But yeah, I know it is crazy. I feel like such a like boring English person saying that, but it really has gone from absolute endless winter to as soon as it hit June 1st, it just like transformed into summer. It's really weird. So so we didn't even have a spring. We didn't really have a transitional period. No, I don't think summer lasts for about three weeks. So buckle up. Buckle up. Yeah. It's like freaking me out. It feels too good to be true. I've forgotten what it feels like to be in a t-shirt. Yeah. I'm loving life. Yeah. It's very nice. Went to this cute little lake outside of London on Monday because it was another long weekend here because they love their long weekends and went for a little dip which was really (laughs) nice but it also yeah it feels strange because we were talking about the what to wear after lockdown thing last week and now that it's summer feels even more weird because I don't I don't know this is such a boring conversation but no I don't know what to wear (laughs) I don't have any t-shirts Yeah, I kind of feel the same, but I pref- I feel like we excel better at summer dressing and then the Brits are really good at winter dressing and then mm, they wear mm-hmm. some like truly insane yes. deranged things when the hot weather comes out. There was just this really cute girl today. I saw her and she was just wearing cowboy boots and a dress and like a long jacket and she looked like she wasn't sure about it. I don't know if we've talked about this on the podcast before, but I love so much being in the UK compared to Australia or New Zealand because it's like at home, everyone kind of dresses the same or very similarly or wears the same designers. There's a specific trend that's going on. But here, because there's so many different like groups, communities, people, fashion students, the style is like outrageous every time you step outside and it's so much more fun. It's weird because like the English have a reputation as being very buttoned up and stiff and kind of reserved. And then it's like all of that pent-up energy seems to be let out in fashion and it's mm. the opposite of what English English people are normally like. It's really strange how every city does have its own thing. 
I would just think that New York would be very like abrasive and experimental and wild, but the style in New York is not that great. And then here it's just amazing. Yeah. People are so free and liberal. Anyway, I can't think of anything I've done this week in terms of watching or reading things other than I finished Master of None. It's only five episodes or something, which I was really sad about. I was sad because I saw a review of it and it said, Master of None, a moving portrait of the disintegration of a marriage. And I was like, what the fuck? Massive spoiler. Oh, fuck. Yeah. But that, yeah. (laughs) I guess that happens in episode one. Kind of. Sort of. Yeah. But it's really, really good. And episode four, I think it was, was so incredible. It was so hard to watch, but so beautifully done. And it basically showed one of the characters the English actress who we both love um, going through IVF alone. And it was just the first time I've ever seen IVF portrayed on screen. You know, she was like having to inject herself. She was having to call her mum because she was so terrified to do it. She was going to the doctor. She was like crying. I was Googling as I did it. I know a bit about IVF, but I don't know how many injections you have to give yourself, how long it lasts, the success rate, any of those things. And it was a really cool thing to watch, I think, just beside my boyfriend as well, because we recently have been having heaps of conversations just off the back of an article I'm writing. And we talked recently about just like how we're in this phase of our life where everyone's kind of stressing about kids or marriage or whatever. And he had done this research independently where he was kind of like, which is true to an extent that there is no cliff that your fertility drops off at 35. Your fertility is steadily declining all the way through. So that the myth that your fertility drops off a cliff at 35 is completely false and is taken from data in like the 1600s or something it's so it's so crazy but then i've been having this conversation back saying the reason women stress at this age at 30 at 28 at 32 at 33 at 34 is because you want to like minimize the chances of having this happen Mm -hmm. like this heartbreak happen so it was a really interesting episode to watch beside him I think because I think he just hadn't like cognizantly thought about how intense that can be and I think the only reason I have is because I've had friends who have gone through miscarriages IVF and not being able to get pregnant yeah and IVF is an incredibly intense experience like I've had friends who've gone through it as well and it's that thing about like injections not being able to drink not being able to have caffeine being really strict about your diet constantly planning your life around when you have to do injections, planning your social life around it, that on top of it costing a lot of money. I think it's so interesting that it is such a massive part of so many women. We even personally knows lives, which means a lot of women's lives, and it's never been depicted on screen that I can think of. Yeah, and it makes you feel absolutely crazy. So it fucks Mm. with your hormones so much, and it makes you really bloated. You feel sick. You feel, like, nauseous all the time. It's, like, a really intense experience, not to mention the cost of it. Anyway, so I watched that, and it was really beautiful, and I was crying. But I think it was really well done. The other thing, when I finished this – well, actually, when I finished that episode, I was like, surely that one isn't directed by Aziz Ansari because it's so focused on – women in the female body but he had directed it and then it kind of facilitated this conversation about Lena Waithe who's also producing the show and is one of the main characters in it about how she actually has been under fire for a couple of projects she's done so she was the creator of a horror tv series called Them which got heaps and heaps of backlash with a lot of black viewers saying that it was basically trauma porn And I guess in some ways this IVF episode could maybe be seen in a similar vein. My boyfriend did say he felt really uncomfortable watching it and it made him feel really funny. And that's why he actually Googled and goes, oh my God, this is the woman who did Queen and Slim as well, which the same thing. I really enjoyed that film. So it was Jodie Turner-Smith and Daniel Kaluuya. And it wasn't directed by Lena Waithe, but she had some part in it. And that as well got backlash for like being kind of trauma porn which is really interesting it's kind of like we were talking about underground railroad last week and i don't think that was trauma porn and i don't think that has been accused of it but i think that question of like why show violence on the screen and what value does it serve Mm. is really important because i think that if you're doing something like underground railroad where it's an adaptation of a celebrated novel that is about a real thing that happened in history to shy away from that violence 
is sanitizing something that people should come to terms with. Whereas I think with them, a fictional show with a fictional family where they just go through the most horrific violence you can imagine and you don't really understand why you're watching it and it's targeted mainly at a black audience who've just gone through an extremely horrific year. I guess creators just have to think through those questions and then just have to deal with how people respond Mm. when it happens. Yeah. As I feel about sexual violence in any show, I'm always like, why? I just don't understand why you'd ever put it in a show. Yeah. Explicitly. Yeah. And a lot of it is so gratuitous and drawn out in nature. That's what I wrote about for Vogue a while ago with the Promising Young Woman thing where I wrote that I loved so much how never once in Promising Young Woman did they show the sexual assault scene because it's just not necessary. And I think like showing a sexual assault scene in a film or a TV show is just kind of lazy in a lot of ways. It's like an event that you can then stem other things off like the chase for the perpetrator or the blah, blah. Like, why would you have that in there other than the shock value? I personally don't believe that a man watching a gratuitous long film rape scene gives him some sort of insight or empathy about women's experience of sexual violence that he might not have otherwise. So I think it's a really important conversation to have because I feel like we grew up from a young age, like watching really violent TV series or films or whatever. And I remember even then thinking, I don't get why I'm watching this. It was so normalized. I used to feel like that about video games too. Like Mm. when kids would play video games shooting people, I was just like, surely this can't be good for us. Yeah. For our psyches to just go around shooting people in the head or like raping prostitutes in Grand Theft Auto when you're 12 years old. Yeah. Like not raping, but like paying them. Yeah, (laughs) killing them afterwards. Yeah. (laughs) Paying them and then killing them. Yeah, I know. So I feel like that's a really interesting thing and it is, I guess it's just something like if you're an artist, you push the boundaries and then the audience responds and that's like a dialogue or whatever. Mm. But I think it is interesting, like what's showcasing something and what's just exploiting it to seem interesting. Yeah. Speaking of that kind of, I've watched the finale of Mayor of Easttown. I really want to watch that. I feel like I've just been missing out. I don't know why I haven't. The first episode, it's very, it has that vibe of that very typical, like it ends with a naked 18-year-old girl splayed across a rock, like Mm. very that vibe, which I think put me off at the start, but it really, it kind of like subverts that as it goes on. It's just a really smart take on that whole genre. But there's Mm -hmm. still, it's not, gratuitously violent and there's no sort of like rape scenes or whatever but it it, some of it just feels it's still about people like kidnapping and murdering girls of course of course but it ended so well and just Kate Winslet in it is just out of control amazing she's just so incredible and she's done some really cool interviews in the aftermath and she did an interview with the New York Times where it's just so funny because she's so beautiful and she's still like it's like by Hollywood standards, it's like, oh, she has no vanity. And it's like by anyone else's standards, she's still like extremely gorgeous, straight-sized, like hot woman. I know. Um, But she made a point of making sure the director didn't change the lighting so her wrinkles were less obvious or she made a point during a sex scene with Guy Pierce of making sure that the roles in her stomach were featured in the sex scene. And I just think that's really cool. Yeah, and she said that she – pushed back twice on the poster because they'd edited out her smile oh. lines. Another really funny part of the, the New York Times interview, which is so random, but at the end they did a round of quickfire questions. Yeah, they're weird, those things that they it's do. so yeah. random. And then they said she had to answer true or false and the, like, allegation was you can't stop reading about Benefer. And Kate goes, <laughs> and she, she goes, she goes, what? No, I haven't read about Jennifer in my life. What are these questions? <laughs> I was like, yes. I literally want to be her friend. Yeah, she seems very cool. She's so cool. And then another thing that I thought was really funny do is you that- think she? Do you think she boasts Leonardo DiCaprio? Or do you think she was always like, go away? I think she was just like, you're yuck. I reckon he didn't try to. Honestly, like with his track record. They were the same age. Yeah, but even then it. I just feel like he was he after he was after young people. He was after <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? He's so he's yeah. very shallow. Like oh, she's out of control, beautiful, obviously, but I feel like Yeah. I don't, like, yeah, I feel like she was like, no. Maybe he tried once, sleazy once. Yeah. But yeah, and then I loved in Mayor of Easttown that Guy Pierce, who's like a very respected actor, is in it, but he kind of is relegated to this love interest role and people have been really confused by that, talking about it, which is really funny because there was all these tweets being like, 
Why was Guy Pearce even in this? This is so confusing. Like, all he did was play this love interest. And then Rosie Waterland, who's like an Australian journalist, did a really funny tweet where she said, I'm loving seeing people confused why a prestige actor would play the love interest to another famous actor. When, like, in women a TV have to show do that women every do that, time. Like, literally constantly. It's yeah. so funny that people were confused by it. And they're like, was this on purpose as, like, a red herring or a thing? Because people just couldn't understand why he would accept the role. It probably literally will be, though. That's the annoying thing. Yeah. It probably will be in season two. They'll be like, ah. Yeah. <laughs> because, like, yeah, because they just couldn't have a man just as the love interest. Well, the show kind of does that. It does a lot of, like, playing with your expectations and playing with who you think will do things based on how things are normally cast and stuff. Yeah. And even, like... There's a twist in the finale, but the twist isn't even really a twist because it's basically. Don't tell me. No, I won't. But it's it's basically just like it's about women and women's relationships and the way women are like really nurturing and maternal and basically have to look after these crazy psycho men who just act like morons all the time. Like that's kind of what the show ends up being about. Amazing. It's so good. Okay, I have a very chuggy recommendation that I wasn't even going to talk about because I felt like too much of a chug, but <laughs> I started listening to Olivia Rodrigo's album. No, please, like enlighten me. I'm feeling very left behind. Yes. So I started listening to it on the way here. Obviously, it's been out for, I don't know, a bit, and it's called Sour. And like I'm across her, but I was also just like, she's just not for me because she's She's too young. And then I was seeing all the tweets of millennials being obsessed with her and I was still like, not for me. And then I put it on and I was walking here and she's obviously like singing a love song about a like 16-year-old boy in her class. And I was like, I can relate, Olivia. This is for me. Yes. I was like, this is for me. This is in fact for me. No, but um, I was just reading recently a couple of pieces about her before I'd even listened to her album and just about the phenomenon that comes with her. And I find that really interesting. I find the whole thing about her interesting for people our age because she kind of feels like the first pop star that has come up of this decade but the first pop star that come up that's kind of been like not directed at us at all so mm-hmm. like your ariana grande's your miley cyrus's your dua Lipa's, like t swift yeah taylor swift every they're all our age like dua Lipa's like quite new but she's our age And then Olivia Rodrigo coming up and just turning 18 now and directing to Gen Z. It feels like the first time millennials have just kind of been like, we don't really know what to do here, Mm -hmm. but it's a catchy bop. So I don't know. And it's funny as well how like, even though she's obviously targeting a younger generation, there's just some people where the fame just becomes, it's like a tipping point where the fame becomes so big that you just can't avoid them. But that happens so quickly. So she, Yeah, I she, just feel like I I just know who she is and that she has an album out and blah, 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 and all this stuff without even ever clicking on something to read about it. It's just in my brain for some reason. Yeah, so she in January released her first song ever and that was called Driver's License. See, I thought that was like a TikTok sensation and she was a nobody, but you're saying she was already famous. She was already famous, so she's a Disney kid. She's like the next-gen Disney kid. She was in some new version of High School Musical or something, and then she released Driver's License, and then that blew up, which you're going to love. Yeah, yeah. Basically (laughs) because her ex-boyfriend had, like, gone off with another – it's like all these Disney kids. Sabrina Carpenter. I don't know why I even know that. Yeah, I didn't even know that. But, yes, gone off. blonde. Yes. Yeah. But people think that that was all like a marketing ploy for her fame. I don't even know anything about it, but I'm sure it is. Yes, of course. <laughs> um, but yeah, it completely, so it debuted at the top of the Billboard Hot 100, completely eviscerated Spotify's record for the most song streams in a week. Her first ever performance was on the, the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. Then she released another song and it scored 20.3 million streams in the first week of release. That's so mini, but I guess there's so many. Australia, yeah. Yeah. But then it's funny because the conversation about like why we love talking about her has kind of overshadowed the actual criticism or the actual conversation about her music or her work. And she actually does have a really good voice. Does she write her songs like Taylor Swift? Don't know. Hmm. But it's kind of interesting because it comes – at a time when we're like reevaluating how we treated pop stars like Britney Spears mm. and we're reevaluating because 
Yeah, she's essentially like the new Britney Spears now. Um, That's really interesting. Like the first post-framing Britney mm, pop star. Mm. Yeah. And I read this newsletter, which was kind of assessing why we can't get enough of her. And they're saying that it was her approachable rise through the Disney machine, coupled with the resulting institutional polish, bona fide Gen Z credentials, generally solid body of work. And then it's coupled at like a moment of time when we all feel like adolescence re-emerging into the world. Mm. And the fact that she she's just kind of like it feels like we're rooting for our younger selves now because of all of the framing Britney stuff. Just so quite interesting. Like it's it's just interesting that we all know about this little seven. She's also very stylish. I know. I'm looking at her Instagram feed now, a lot of Marine Sir. Yeah. And I loved how you put in the notes, which I totally agree with, that she's like a gateway for millennials into like the TikTok Gen Z generation Mm. because I feel like we're all just wanting those like easy ins to feel like we understand it. And she just has like that kind of crossover appeal where you're like, okay, it's a pop star. She's young. She makes Taylor Swift songs cool. But then she also has that like TikTok vibe that makes you feel in the know. (laughs) Yeah. And she obviously is quite cool, like the way she got Petra Collins to do her music video. That's right. And Devin Carlson styled it. Yeah. That's like. Very cool. Yeah. And like that's a get for Petra Collins and Devin Carlson, even though to us they're like cool millennial people. Yeah. But that's so cool that she knows who they are and got them to do her music video. She's obviously quite a cool kid. It's so interesting to me now, like, because we've talked so much about, and we talked to Katia and Trixie from Drag Race about this, how, like, fame has become so siloed. And a Mm. lot of the time now it feels, like, big. I think Katia was saying, like, you'll never have a Julia Roberts again. She was just this relic of the 90s where you you didn't have all these options 24-7. You could only obsess over one person. Mm. And now it's pockets of fame. But then someone like Olivia Rodrigo comes along and it's like you just can't escape knowing who she is. Yeah, I actually was reading a piece that was talking about how every so often there's just a thing that kind of just permeates. Like It's like everyone wants to jump on board because everyone wants to have this thing to bond over. Uh-huh. And that feels like a post-lockdown thing too. For but us even to all be like, like, okay, we're all in this together and yeah. we all love Olivia Rodrigo. Yeah, there's her, but then there's also like the normal people thing. Yeah. There's like all of these cultural obsessions that we all just jump on and bandwagon until we like thrash them so much that they're just embarrassing. Town is like that. Like on Twitter, yeah. I was watching people talk about it and people were like talking in this really embarrassing way about it. Like the characters were people they knew and were making jokes about like, oh, that's what Gene would say. Yeah. And I was like, what? And it's just a communal bonding thing, I guess. I wish I'd written it down, but it was quite spot on because it was just like how we all decided that Phoebe Bridges was really amazing and we just all should listen to her music. And then it was like how we all decided that blah, blah. And now we're all deciding that we're going to ship Olivia Rodrigo. I know. There is literally, like Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book about it, like the tipping point. There is just a point you hit where it's quite impossible to fail from there. You just mm. touch a critical mass and then it's just like, okay. Yeah, we have to do is fuck this up now. Like you've yeah, got it. It's yeah. just so nuts. Yeah. Anyway, so she's okay. she's got it. A Tug's guide to Olivia Rodrigo, done and dusted. <laughs> the oldies who are confused. I want to recommend quickly and talk about Paris Lee's new book. It's called What It Feels Like for a Girl. Are you across Paris? Mm-mm. So she's. A writer, journalist, columnist has written for Vice and The Independent and now British Vogue and she's trans and this is her first, it's like her debut novel but it's like a memoir novel and it's, I've only just started reading it but it's like really funny and it's written like train spotting in the dialect of where she grew up so it's all written in that, like you know that heavy northern english accent Mm. it's like written in how that sounds so it takes like a minute to get used to oh funny but it's really funny but it's also sad because it's about basically her growing up in a boy's body and having like gender body dysmorphia being really bullied because she grew up in like a really working class housing estate area her dad was this super macho guy that had these like really hardcore ideas about gender and then her mom just took off randomly with a guy she'd met 
and they moved to Turkey together when she was 13. So she just had to move back in with her dad. Oh, my God. Relatable. But this book is really incredible and I've just really loved reading and listening to interviews with Paris this week because she's basically talking about how crazy it is that her book is even being and like I guess I've already kind of made that mistake but how her book keeps being framed as like a trans memoir when her transition and her gender is like a tiny part of the story Mm. and she was basically saying you know there are so many memoirs where people don't say it's a woman's memoir or a men's memoir or she's been criticized by people for not focusing enough on her transition because it's such a tiny part of the book and she's like to me it's boring I've talked about it I've written about it but when I look back on my life and the defining moments, my gender was defining in the way that I was bullied for it. And that's what I write about. But my transition and that experience to me, isn't that interesting? And she basically was saying that she keeps getting pushed into and labeled as a trans activist and she doesn't get it. And she feels guilty because she's like, I'm not out here campaigning for anything. I'm not out here like chaining myself to parliament to get things changed. I just get on Twitter sometimes to remind people to be nice to trans people. Mm. And it's crazy to me that that is seen as being this trans activist that everyone celebrates when I feel like I don't do anything to be an activist. Yeah, it must just be really frustrating and kind of scary because you're just like, I'm just literally trying to be me. That's like mm-hmm. a um this amazing Kiwi model who I interviewed recently, Tamanaho McKay. And she was 17, I think, when she got signed by a modeling agency. And she just got signed because she's a beautiful model. And then, like, in her first fashion week, all this press, like, literally all of this press Mm -hmm. was about how she was the first, I think she was the first maybe trans model to walk either in fashion week or, or like, the the biggest the most famous trans model in New Zealand, basically. And just she was 17 years old. And suddenly it's like the entire country is talking about how she's trans. Mm-hmm. And she was just like, this is so crazy because this isn't like now I'm being thought of as having to campaign for this thing. Now I'm, I'm having to be thought of as being a voice for this movement. Every interview I do is going to be about me being trans. I just want to talk about me and my life. Or I just want to be like a model. Yeah, I just want to be a model. Yeah. Like- Same thing with this amazing model called Kai who I interviewed recently and they are actually in the new Calvin Klein campaign looking like I just walked past a huge billboard of them today Mm. and they look so stunning but yeah they said the exact same thing like they're a spoken word poet and then like because they are a spoken word poet and then have become known for modeling like they were the first black trans model to walk Louis Vuitton men's and they were just talking about how now it feels like any thing they want to talk about unless they're talking about being trans it's basically literally trauma born like they just feel like Mm -hmm. if they're if they're just wanting to talk about a normal thing like a normal love poem or like having their heart broken Mm -hmm. no one wants to hear about it because everyone wants to hear about the really intense traumatic part of your story or like Mm -hmm. the really different part because you're known as being trans exactly and like this thing with paris lees is like she's written this really amazing exciting novel that's taken her seven years to write and gender is this it's like central but also not central at all it's about she's basically said as well which i think is so interesting which me and you've talked about heaps she was like the story is really a story about class it's a story about someone who she ended up going to jail for robbing a client when she was a sex worker (laughs) kind of iconic um and she was saying i came out of jail and then decided to get an education and then went to university and then started making lots of money. And the book to me is a story about class. And I think people obsessing over gender is making them miss what the actual book is about, which is this transition that happens when you go from having no education and no money to a lot of education and a lot of money in the circles that that brings you into. That mm. to me has been a bigger transformation than my gender transformation. And especially in the UK. Yeah, I find I that like so true. So interesting. And it's so much more interesting. And it's just like that's yeah. not even being discussed when people are reviewing the book. Yeah. Well, we talked about that with Raven Smith, mm. his chapter about class and going from being working class to middle class is like so interesting. The Marxist girls are out again. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Class is everything. I think that Yeah. all the time. I yeah. think about any times that I've had discomfort in fashion spaces and I've been confused about like 
what it is you're doing yeah, wrong. Yeah, or feeling like you're doing something wrong and like the thing that you're doing wrong is thinking that you're doing something wrong, which is something that comes with just not being having born been brought up to, to feel comfortable in like rooms of extortionate wealth or to not be able to name check certain things or whatever. Like or afford certain things, like not to not be wearing things that other people are wearing. Or yeah, like- yeah, or to just – there. I think the thing is when some people are brought up wealthy, if you actually put them next to someone, you could have someone that's wearing head-to-toe designer stuff and someone that was – born wealthy and isn't and the person that was born wealthy just has this ease yeah in those spaces yeah. and like Yesterday. that you just can't it doesn't you just can't acquire it it comes from birth hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns. Yesterday, actually, we were sitting in the park and this older woman walked past and she was just wearing white jeans, a top, had a like jacket tied around her waist and like sneakers. And we both looked her up and down and we were just like, she just looks so elegant. Like she was just mm-hmm. obviously beautiful and she just aged really well. She was maybe like late 60s, early mm-hmm. 70s. And she just looked gorgeous. And both of us said at the same time, she just looks so rich. Mm-hmm. Like she just looks, she just exudes that confidence that comes with being so rich that you can't even see. She's wearing no jewelry, but you can just mm-hmm. tell that mm-hmm. she is born into this like life mm-hmm. of not having to worry. A hundred percent. And I told you I went to Cambridge on the weekend and just like seeing that university, I know not everyone who goes to Cambridge is wealthy, but it's quite mind blowing to think that if you spent your undergraduate uni years here, like if this is where you got drunk and had sex for the first time and did all of those formative experiences in some way that looks like this, there is nowhere on planet earth you would walk into and feel intimidated. Hmm. Literally nowhere. It's just such a privilege. And I think that There are so many different things that we talk about that are completely valid in terms of privileges and whatever, but I think class is one. Particularly in Australia and New Zealand, I think it's so discreet in Australia and New Zealand that they give you this idea that it doesn't exist there. Like here it's so obvious because it's your accent or where you went to school. In Australia it's a little bit more fluid, but it's still so real. People will still – I remember when I got to uni and everyone was asked, oh, no, I moved to Auckland from like Hawke's Bay slash Wellington where I went to uni and when I got to Auckland and I would like start going to house parties and things everyone would say what high school did you go to to? and I was always like what are you talking about I was like why do people ask this question and I was always really confused about it and then I realized that they're trying to judge me based on what school I went to and I was like you guys are crazy crazy that happened when I moved to Sydney so a friend of mine Patty he was still, because you graduate a year earlier in Perth. So, like, I was in my first year of uni. My friend Patty was still in high school when I was in my first year of uni. And he invited me to this house party in the Northern Beaches in Sydney, which is quite expensive. He went to an elite boys' school. This party was a girl who went to an elite girls' school. And he was like, hey, my friend Grace is here, whatever. And she was like, no. And she was like, what school did you go to? And I was, like, laughing. I was like, what? Mm. <laughs> I was like, I- I'm from Perth. I went to blah, blah, blah in Perth. And then she was just like, you can't come in. He was like, are you insane? There's like 10 of us here. Just let her come in. And she wouldn't let me come in because she didn't recognize the school I'd been to. And then all of us left the party. Oh, my God. It was – I've never – and I was so confused. Like, I wasn't – I didn't feel offended because it had never even crossed my mind in my entire life to think about that. Yeah. So I was just like, wait, what? I don't understand it. It's taken me like 10 years to be like, oh, that's what that was. Yeah. 
so crazy. Yeah. Anyway, class. <laughs> Bring down the class structure. There's actually been – I just saw this headline that I haven't looked at properly yet, but apparently Buckingham Palace, the Guardian, said an expose saying that up until the late 60s, the Queen had signed off on paperwork banning immigrants and non-white workers from having specific jobs in the palace apart from domestic, like, servitude jobs. Yeah, that doesn't surprise no me. No surprises, but gross. Um, yeah, it's, re- it's really funny. It's like we were talking on the weekend about a friend who went to Cambridge and another friend was just saying that their whole life was leading up to that point. So it's like the schools you go to from a young age, it was like 94% of everyone who went to his high school went to either Oxford or Cambridge. Mm-hmm. It's like you're like groomed to do that. Mm-hmm. So then you're groomed to go to the best university, obviously. I know everyone knows this, but it was just funny thinking about it that way. And then if you managed to get in via different means, it would just be such a culture shock. You would just I be like, of, what the I fuck? I was staring because- at the main building, Is it Like, we need to go. I was staring at it and it was like my brain couldn't even compute what I was looking at. It's like giant and grand. I just couldn't even yeah. understand it as a building. It was like the Sistine Chapel or something. It's yeah. just the most incredible thing I've ever seen. And because my boyfriend went to Cambridge and I remember when he was like talking to me about it and I remember just looking at him being like you act like you're not wealthy but you obviously must be because you went to Cambridge and then it took like months but before I was like oh my god it costs the exact same amount as any other college in the country Mm -hmm. it's only it's four thousand pounds a year it's like it's like less than university at home yeah but it's just you can't get into it because no one who's not wealthy can get into it usually because wealthy, all the wealthy people are prepped from literally birth to get into that university. And even that complex, so my boyfriend Zach grew up in the eastern suburbs, which is in Sydney, like quite notorious for being very privileged. And I was just so naive to all of this stuff. Like he worked as a private tutor, right, for high school students. Mm. He was at one point doing his master's, now he's doing his PhD, highly, highly trained in mathematics, and he was tutoring 13-year-old students for, like, $150 an hour. Mm. And parents of, like, young year eight kids were paying someone doing a PhD in maths at, like, a top British university money to teach their, like, young child how to do whatever. Yeah. And they expect results, right? They're like, we're laying out a lot of money. They better be top of their class for this test. And it's like that just blew my mind where I was like, oh, this is what people are talking about when they're like, we live in this culture that makes it like impossible for certain people to succeed. If that's the leg up you have, if you go to a school where parents are saying, I'm paying $50,000 a year, my kid better get into law at Sydney University. Or like, I'm paying $50,000 a year, plus I'm paying a tutor every single $300 week. $300 a week for a tutor every single week who studies this. You're basically making it almost impossible. Yeah for your kid not to get into these positions yeah. and then they're taking away the opportunities of kids that are like right on the borderline. That's why I find I, I find it so interesting because I was like if I like said that the other day and then I sound it, it makes me sound so up myself but I'm not at all but I was literally like if we had the same opportunities I feel like I would have just got both of us would have gotten into those universities if we have the same opportunities same. and as it made all these me feel people. upset like thinking yeah. I was looking up admissions to Cambridge and I was like, I could have gotten in to do undergraduate here. It didn't even cross my mind to come here. And if I came here, I can't even imagine how different my life would be. Maybe it wouldn't be different at all. You know, I'm not like, but I just like can't imagine how different your perspective on the world would be if that was your experience of undergraduate university. Yeah, you wouldn't be like intimidated or have imposter syndrome or worried Ever. about it. Yeah. Like it's so nuts. And we say that as people that went to like really, really good universities in our country. So it's like there are definitely people who would look at us and be like, if I had done what we'd done. Or just gone to, to uni or. Gone yeah. to uni and studied journalism and done it. Blah, blah, I find blah. I'd, I actually do think that I learned nothing from university. Same. I don't even think that it was worth my time going. I don't think it was worth the money me going. And I think that it just then leaves people who don't go to university having like the most, like you have that about not going to Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Think about people who didn't go to university. They just feel like they're stupid all the time I've- for no reason because that's the way that society's set up is to make you feel it, if you didn't finish high school or if you didn't go to university, 
that you are uh, dumber than other people. Well, I even looked up because I was thinking when I was there, I was like, okay, if you wanted to come as a mature age student, if I say now at my age, I feel like this is the first age in my life where I'd actually be like primed to sit and just read literature and learn about it for three years. Like I would love to do that now. How would I actually go about that? Because I'm obviously much more intelligent now than I was when I was 17 years old. And it's like to enter as a mature age student to do undergrad from everything I've read, they still base it on your high school results or there's like other things that you can do, but there's not some sort of bridging course or exam really from what I've read that's easy to do. They take Mm -hmm. in your high school results and your work experience. That's just so crazy that your entire life of education is like rooted in what you did when you were 17 and 18. Yeah. It makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah, it makes no sense. The whole system is fucking rigged. Yeah, like class is obviously a huge issue and, and education leads into that. But I feel like the weight we put on education. So I know you learn a lot from Cambridge and all these people have learned a lot because they had private tutors and things like that. But I just feel like my old boss, she had never gone to university and she managed to work her way up to like the top of the company or something. And she was still, after like a decade of working at this company proving how smart she is how on the ball she is she still couldn't get paid like anywhere near the same amount as other people because she'd never gone to university and i was like that conversation just really needs to change i agree so much like i bill haters like an actor director i really really like and he was saying he's incredibly intelligent and he was saying he has such a chip on his shoulder because he flunked out of high school never went to uni Mm. and he basically said i am like He's he's not an arrogant person. I don't know why I'm defending the celebrity, but he's like he's basically said I am more well read than anyone I know. I read like really voraciously. I've read all of the classics. I've watched like every piece of cinema. I've like read the philosophers. I've done whatever, and I still have this chip on my shoulder and the fear of seeming stupid around people that I kind of know aren't as intelligent as me because they went to college mm. and I didn't. It just yeah. still is this huge source of insecurity for me that I hate and wish it wasn't because I know it's stupid, but it's just like our culture just creates that. Yeah, I have friends who feel the exact same way. And it's a financial thing. It's like our culture creates that because you have to pay like $100,000 and be in debt forever to go yeah. to uni. Yeah. Also, Breely, who we've had on the pod, her book about this topic, I think it's called Who Gets to Be Smart, just mm. came out. Hmm. Yeah, I should read that. I should read that. My girlfriend who I had dinner with a couple of weeks ago, her boyfriend goes to Cambridge and she's it's funny because she talks about him how you talk about Amar. But she's like, he just has this like confidence in the world. Like he's yeah. so good at arguing his points. He's so good at like not backing down on things. He's so good at fully forming debates and then having them with people. Mm-hmm. There's just something about that experience that does something to you that yeah. just makes you feel very self-assured. Well, of course it does. You're yeah. going to one of the best universities in the world. Mm-hmm. You have everyone around you looking at you, telling you how smart and talented you are to get there. Mm-hmm. Like imagine the confidence that affords you. Exactly. Of course you're going to feel like you know what, what you're we're talking about. To. It's like then you buy into that system because you're like, well, I want to fucking feel like that. I yeah. can't imagine what I would have done if I felt like that all yeah, the time. That's feel- why I want to go to Cambridge Yeah, then we're adding to the problem. Yeah. It's like, of course you feel confident speaking up in meetings because you yeah. were the one person in your school or whatever like to get into this crazy university that everyone in the world knows its name let's go let's go be old age students there <laughs> and then make a tv show about it that'd be cool no because we want to burn down the system i want to embrace the system we should no <laughs> no the better thing to do is write a fucking hit tv show without the going to, to cambridge our own university Yes, P-Brain. A-W-D-P. The P-Brain University. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. But this is the thing. Like, this is our university. We can talk. Maybe this is kind of the thing with Naomi Osaka, mm-hmm. where it's like things, our generation is amazing and the generation blow us because we're realizing that like things are only as important as you let them be. Yeah. Does that make sense? It's yeah. like with the Oscars, I loved that piece in the New York about the Oscars where it was just like everyone dressed really casually and it was really awkward and weird. So then when people gushed about getting an Oscar, you're like, mm, that's embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, or, or the Golden Globes acting yeah. like they can just keep doing what they've been doing for years because they don't want to change. And so we're suddenly all like, well, we don't even need you. Like, like No why? one gives a shit. We don't no need you guys anymore. No one actually cares. And I feel like Naomi Osaka has done that with the tennis where she's been like, okay, I yeah, just so won't she, compete. <laughs> yeah, so for anyone who missed it or wants like a brief overview – Basically, before the French Open started, Naomi Osaka said that she 
wasn't going to do press at the tournament and she'd pay the fine that accompanied her decision because you get fined basically it's part of the contract to do press after every game. Then she played her first game on Sunday, paid the $15,000 fine for not participating in the press conference afterwards. But then kind of the French Open was basically being like, if you continue doing this, we're going to raise the penalty. We're going to do rah, rah, rah. And then so she turned around and said, okay, you know what? I think the best option is for me to just sit out of this tournament, take a step back from tennis. I have suffered bouts of depression since 2018 when competing in the US Open. Anyone who knows me knows I'm introverted and I get really anxious before press conferences, before games. I often have headphones in because it lessens the anxiety. I'm just going to just step aside for this. And then the French Open has gotten so much heat because it's just like, this is a young woman saying, I have a mental health condition. This will really help me. It'll help me be a better player and help me compete in this tournament. Like, just make this exception for me. And they were basically like, absolutely not. This is, they were just completely stuck in their ways and wouldn't do anything to kind of facilitate her. It's so crazy because, like, we were talking about this before we started recording, but it's just so funny to me. I feel like we see this so much where everyone is now proclaiming everywhere that they are supporters of mental health discussions and they want people to, like, have their mental health in check. And then whenever anything comes up where it's actually like, okay, you need to change the structure around your working system to facilitate someone's mental health, people are like, well, no. Yeah. (laughs) it's That's what this feels like. It's just so insane to me that – this person who is literally the draw card of your institution. Like yeah. she, she's what Serena Williams was, still is, but was five years ago, 10 years ago. She's the reason that people are tuning into tennis more so than any male star at the moment, I would argue. And she's saying, okay, for me to play really good tennis, I need X, Y, Z, which are like very reasonable requests. And they're rooted in like actual medical reasons Mm. and they're saying no it's infuriating and it just showcases how we have all these buzzwords now like mental health and anxiety and depression and yet obviously in the way this has been discussed so few people actually understand it i guess while we were talking i was thinking the other side of this is every other player has to do these press conferences even if say they have mental health issues and can't afford to pay the fines Mm -hmm. and then so naomi's getting let off doing something that will probably make her play better tennis because she's not having to focus on it. But then her competitors yeah, aren't. Like her competitors are having to do this. Like I, I think it's so important that she t- makes a stand. I think it's so important that these institutions change. But I was just thinking about the fairness of it all mm. and her being able to be, because she's so fucking rich now, her being able to have that opportunity to step away while younger players and other people she's playing against don't and that relationship between sports people and the press is really crucial i think to this discussion and i think part of the hostility towards her is based in the fact that so last year she made 55 million dollars and that is obviously down to her skills as a tennis player but like a big part of that is down to this symbiotic relationship with the media so this willingness to take on sponsorships and to do interviews and to like play that game and i think that idea of the media game has been used for so long to like punish women and say, okay, well you decided to play that game. So therefore the gloves are off, baby. We can do whatever we Mm. want, which is ridiculous. But it is also, I think for the sake of like a fair and balanced debate, interesting to say, okay, you've made a lot, a lot of money about media interest in you and fan interest in you up to this point. You don't get to cherry pick. I mean, I'm saying this, but I don't agree with it. You don't get to cherry pick your partnership. This is a really old-fashioned tradition. But it is old-fashioned because I think, like, that idea of those post-game interviews, I don't get why they exist. They're kind of random. You never really get anything that interesting out of them. Journalists have written op-eds for, like, The Guardian and other places saying, like, the journalists don't even like doing them. They're, like, a really bad setting to get any interesting information. Mm. It's, like, weird they exist anyway. I think it would be great for, like you said earlier, these institutions to realize they can't bully people like Naomi Osaka into doing what they want to do just because that's the way it's always been done. And Mm. instead she's just going to be like, okay, well, you know what? I'm not going to play in the French Open I have enough money, I have enough accolades, like let's see what that does to your ratings and to your tournament. Yeah, and it's like what is the French Open without the players? Yes, it's like that, exactly, And yeah. like we've never thought like that before, which is so funny. Yeah. 
But I remember even that mentality of like when we were interns at magazines, we were just kicked around, made to do fucking so much work for free, get people's coffees, work crazy hours, just completely like walked across because that's the way it had always been done. Mm -hmm. And we just did that. And then years later, you start seeing people, you know, having conversations about uh, getting paid fairly and the work that they're subject to. And it's obviously like so important and so necessary. But I remember at first, like my first gut knee-jerk reaction was, well, I had to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of probably what some older tennis players are thinking. They're probably just like, everyone's had to be through this. Just like no one pull up your it. socks yeah, and just yeah. get on with it. It's part of the game. But it's like, no, nothing is going to change unless we just say fuck this and take a stand. Yeah, exactly. And I think like this idea of these institutions being so powerful that like the individual doesn't matter at all is being challenged so much. For so long, there was this idea in every industry that had like a big name. And that's why this relates to the Cambridge thing. It's just like anything that seemed to have this esteemed heritage association the idea was just like shut the fuck up and just do what you have to do to be part of it and I think the amazing thing about social media now is that it's really democratized I guess talent is the best word because people who are really really intelligent or really really good at what they do really fantastic photographers or stylists or writers or you know tennis players or whatever field they're in they rise to the top because they just gain a following that's completely outside of these like pathways that were seen as essential in mm. the past. Yeah. Even something like SNL. Back in the day, it was seen like this heritage thing where you need to be associated with SNL to have a career. And now you're kind of looking at SNL and it feels very stale and old and tired. And you're like, no, they need these young people that need to keep their talent to make themselves relevant. It's like everything's just being flipped on its head. Yeah. Which is amazing. Yeah. Love her. Love Naomi. She's fucking cool. She's so cool. I know, yeah. So cool for that. Yeah. I remember when she started winning heaps of games and then people went on her Instagram and she just poses like a little hot thought on her Instagram all the time. And bikini. Yeah. I love her. And bikini. She has this hot rapper boyfriend. She's just like really cool. And people came on her Instagram and were like, you can't pose like this. You know, you're rah, 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 you're a professional. And she was just like, get fucked. Yeah, like, fuck off. Okay, yeah. like, you want to see me play more than I care about. Yeah. Like, she's got $55 million. She's probably, like, sorted. Mm. Obsessed with her. I love this. I, like, everything's crumbling. It's heaven. Yeah. All good. Okay, let's talk about Prince Harry. His new TV show with Oprah's come out and mixed mixed reviews. I actually haven't watched it. Neither, but I watched the trailer and it made me cry. I know. But I think that was when you were in your, like, emotional state last week. Because you started crying about Rihanna. Oh, yeah, I did, yeah. But it was, like, emotional in that way that it's, like, designed to make you cry. Mm. Okay, so the Telegraph called it a sensitive, serious-minded look at mental health. And the Independent called it well-meaning but unambitious. And the Guardian said that while it has very pure, good intentions, it's still offering a very sanitized, rich version idea of what mental health is. And it's obviously Prince Harry, like, centering his own experience of growing up in immense wealth and privilege and then realizing that in that environment it's good to, like, talk and be open and be vulnerable and get therapy and that that will change your life but that's like a very 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 specific kind of mental health experience yeah and that it really leans into that and that he's like obviously a muffin and he does this weird eye therapy where he crosses his hands over his chest and closes (laughs) eyes we have a photo of it in our doc under jardo it is the i I said to izzy i wish this picture could be our episode title this week yeah it's hilarious like i love him but it's I, I love him I, too. I get it. I'm like, I, I get it. He so has I, a very narrow worldview. I hadn't finished um, listening to him on Armchair Expert <laughs> when we recorded the other episode. I, I got like halfway through and then we recorded the episode. So I missed, I said he talked about Orlando Bloom, but he also said, he literally goes, yeah, the body keeps the score. Am I right? He just literally Harry. like labeled off the fucking title of a trauma book that my therapist gave me. The body keeps the, the score. The body keeps the score, I right? feel like you should be married to Prince Harry. Like I do think so. 
me and Megan are quite similar in our fucking woo-woo, like, yeah. therapy California's ways. California's my spiritual home. Yes. The chicken Agreed. Food. Yeah. Like, the animals. I just We'd love have rescuing. have some rescue dogs. The other day, Izzy was like, I just love rescuing. I was like, I love rescuing. You're like, yeah. <laughs> That's what yeah. Megan said in the thing. Yeah. Yeah. He, he means so well. It's literally like, he's just, he's a pea brain. He's a he's muffin, just like, yeah. I just want to help everyone else. Um, but, but then he's like, I want to help everyone by being like, if you're super rich and your family tells you you shouldn't talk, you should talk because getting therapy helps. Like, I, I know that that's not all he does. And I know it's like beyond that slightly. But I think like in the Megan and Harry Oprah interview and in this series, it sounds like there's this thread of a slight detachment from yeah, but he's, real life. He's, the thing with him is he's traveled to like every country not every country but so many countries in the commonwealth and has been in situations where he's he's been he like literally went to afghanistan and was in war so i think he's like seen this stuff but i think he just doesn't understand i think a huge issue is people don't encourage people to look outside of themselves with mental health so it's so focused on you as an individual and your own mental health struggle and you having depression and you having anxiety so you needing to heal it through therapy and stuff and i think the only kind of way that prince harry and oprah and megan could really help is by being like it's a societal issue like the Mm -hmm. reason we're all suffering the reason like depression and mental health rates are rising is because of the way society is set up it's because of capitalism it's because we're all competing against each other it's because Everyone focuses on money, success, and power. It's because people in lower socioeconomic backgrounds don't have the means to be able to do all of these things that will help them be happy. They don't have time to lie in parks and enjoy the sunshine. They don't have time to spend time with friends and family. They're like worried about money. They're stressed. I think where Harry will be is he'll just be like, I think he'll be aware of the fact that not everyone can afford therapy, but then it's also like it's hard because what can you tell people to actually help you can tell people to like practice gratitude and spend more time with friends and family and if you can't afford therapy talk to friends or whatever but a lot of it is just all based on like literally class money and changes in the government yeah no i totally agree i think harry is stuck in a catch-22 i don't know if he's naive or he's pretending he doesn't understand but he seems to like not get the media even though he has this hatred for the media which is understandable but it's just like he seems to understand in some sense that to achieve any of the goals that he wants to achieve on like a social level he needs to like put himself in the narrative because that's what makes people tune in Mm. but he does that while also really unironically without nuance or context criticizing the media for like showcasing an above average interest in his life and he seems to not understand that conflict which i just find bizarre like to me like the obamas like obama doesn't come into a netflix documentary and be like i was so stressed when like the iran deal was happening and like this is how i dealt with it and like you can deal with it too he would make a documentary about how people without access to mental health in chicago go about you know what i mean it's just like Mm. he removes himself from it because he doesn't want himself to be the center of things but he knows his name being attached to a project will generate a certain amount of interest to me that displays an intelligent elegant understanding of how media works whereas it seems like prince harry is like No, I just want to throw myself in it when I feel like it, but also fuck off all the rest of the time. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's why it's just so funny because he's like, I'm so sick I had to leave the country because everyone was being so intrusive, which is fair enough because they were being disgusting and racist to his wife. But then he's like filming his therapy sessions with Oprah and putting them on Apple TV. And I'm just like, I also understand that level of the criticism where I'm like, I think his intentions are so pure. (laughs) I don't think he's being a hypocrite on purpose, Mm. but I'm also just like kind of staggered by him not, still not getting it at this point. Okay, so Prince Harry was kind of a Jardin moment of the week, but we just didn't announce it as that. So we have one more, which is that the other weekend, I don't think we talked about it on the pod, but we talked about how Rita Ora and Taika Waititi, the New Zealand director, were rumoured to be dating because they've been just like passing all over the show in Sydney. And then the other weekend went viral after they looked to have had like a long weekend booze up in Sydney. And then him, Rita Ora and Tessa Thompson were just seen like canoodling and kissing 
on a balcony at like six <laughs> in the morning on Sunday, which is just kind of like that's what happens at six in the morning on a Sunday when you've been partying all night. But then when you're really famous, it's just it's you can't do that outside. Like, I don't know, I could, I just see that in, in so many situations where I've just been like... It was not like those Justin Timberlake pictures, don't you reckon? Yes. On the yeah. balcony. Yeah. yeah. Or, I, yeah, I feel like he's a sleaze bag. But even, like, you know, when you're just really drunk and you just cuddle up to your good friend and you just have your arms around them and just, like, cuddle them and there's nothing Naughty going on. <laughs> but everyone instantly, like, all of us ch- fucking chugs over here. We're like... Oh my they god! Were are they this like three way? They're relationship. in a polyamorous yeah. relationship, and they're like dating, and yeah. But yeah, then he got in trouble apparently from Marvel that was saying stop being so naughty when you're in Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. That's silly of them. I would just lean into the good publicity. I mean, it's like bad publicity, but it's not bad. It's not bad. Like no one's gonna be like, oh, I'm not seeing Thor three now. Yeah, but if it was like one step further, people would. If they were. Like, if they were on the balcony. <laughs> if they were bussing on the balcony, if there were like drugs, if you know, like it could just easily go from being like kind of funny and a viral meme to being like Tessa Thompson could not get work again yeah. because of this like one night. That's why I find it when I was watching it, I was just like, God, it's it did have that feeling of like you're two steps away from being a bit too naughty. Yeah, it's, it's literally like a situation any of us could find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. But when you're famous, you just can't. You just like actually can't do that. Mm-hmm. And you have to have a bit more mm-hmm. tact, unfortunately, which sucks. But just, I don't know, go inside and close the curtains if it I gets wonder, to daylight. Yeah, because like in Australia. They would feel like they were on holiday, though, because the press would be way less than anywhere else. Yeah, totally. I'm like, what's the machinations of that? The press was sitting, waiting just in case, or the press got a tip off because people saw them on the balcony. Thoughts? Um, I think, don't know. I think maybe the press knew they were out all night or something, and then they would have obviously been like hiding as they took those shots, which is just gross. But you just need to be a bit more careful. <laughs> they were so funny. They really like painted a picture. Oh, I was like, I have been there. Yeah, same. It like, made me it made feel, feel hungover. Sick. It made me feel hungover. That's how I felt. It made me feel like I'd smoked 40 cigarettes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, so <laughs> that's so funny. That- I feel bad for famous people. Yeah. I would hate, like, I would hate to just imagine, to think imagine about that. Imagine how anxious we are when we're hungover. Imagine being Tessa Thompson waking up. Like, so, so that Passing was Sunday morning it was taken. Brother. So she must have gone home, gone to sleep, woken up to that and being like, fuck me. That's like my director on the film. That's like, oh. yeah, she's in his film. Is she? Yeah. That's like, read it or there's photos of us everywhere. Like you would just feel so anxious. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Can't imagine it. Can't imagine. Well wishes to her. Well wishes to Tess Thompson. I don't have any feelings about Rita Ora. No. Oh, we um, saw her one time randomly at an event, remember? Oh, yeah. <laughs> she played like three songs. She's always in Sydney. She's just around. She's around. She's, She's like around. everywhere. Yeah. She had that big party around the corner from here. Yeah. In lockdown. Yeah. Naughty girl. It's like funny. She's, she's a naughty girl. She's I like, a naughty I girl. Like I feel like we'd like, like her, her if we yeah. met her. I think we would. Rita, come on the pod. Yeah. Um. Bye. Oh, bye. I'm always so sad when it's over. Bye. bye. <laughs>
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.